So I farm so hard, the employees wanna find me And then wanna hire me What's 100k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy Working late nights, you best believe me My grades can only go ace Never wanna see another B unless I'm Jay-Z Farm so hard, let's get paid Welcome to another episode of Farm So Hard. Um, we've been waiting this for a long time. I can't believe we waited yes, yes. 10 episodes later to do it. My counterpart, Jimmy Pruitt. Jimmy, go ahead. Uh, welcome and introduce yourself. Yeah, for you guys who don't know me, I'm the other end of the Farm So Hard podcast. Uh, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. FarmD in the ED. And super excited to have this combined episode where... We look at something from an admin perspective and then go ahead and transition it downstairs to the ED where everyone tries to be a boss with a whole lot of sauce. <laughs> That's right. All right. So today we're going to be talking about early the discharge for deep vein thrombosis. So some quick definitions before uh, Jimmy hit you guys with the pathophys as a nice refresher for our pharmacists out there. We're going to say some common terms, we'll say SCAMP. What a SCAMP is, is a standardized clinical assessment and management plan. Essentially what it is, they're just financial clinical initiatives that can help benefit not only the hospital, but for patients. A DVT is a blood clot and deep vein, usually in the legs. And PE, which is a pulmonary embolism, a condition in which one or more arteries and lungs become blocked by a blood clot. So diving in a little deeper than that, uh, Jimmy, can you hit him with the pathophys for DVT, VTE, all that jazz? All right, guys, it's going to be a lot more than you guys are used to me kind of get into. Uh, major theory eliminating the pathogenesis of a, a VTE or venous thrombos, venothromboembolism. And what that's really going to come down to, you're going to have a few things happening. You're going to have alterations in blood flow, venous stasis. The blood's going to be pooling and hanging out in one area. Then add on to that the fact that you can have vascular endothelial injury. Endothelia is sitting there hanging out, having a good time. It says something damages it and release an entire host of cytokines and inflammatory markers that's going to generate the perfect environment for a clot to be produced. And then lastly, you're going to have alterations in the constitution of the blood. So again, what all those things that can be released from the endothelium, all that's going to come together. So what you're going to have, you're going to have, also you're going to have alterations in the constitutes of the blood, where whether that's going to be something that's inherited or acquired, and produce this hypercoagulable state, and that's going to lead to the perfect scenario where you have a composition of a clot. So background, and I love how we're doing this from a clinical and administrator perspective. In 2003 to 2014, inpatient hospital costs range from $3,000 to $5,000 per admission for a primary DVT diagnosis. The average length of stay days for a DVT can range from 4.9 to 7 days. Recurrent VTEs that requires readmission could be up to 48% more costly than the initial event. And what I like about that last bullet is that a lot of that is making sure that patients go home with the drug. There is appropriate patient follow-up. So you can kind of see how from a transition of cares proponent, like how important that is. What is important is like, why are we even talking about this today? So there is some decent data out there, like protocols for outpatient DVT management found a cost reduction of over $2,000 per patient with an oxparin. 36% of patients have expressed the inability to afford medications. And Burnett had a study that discusses that DOAC patient selection criteria for DOAC use included adherence, 
patient follow-up and confirmed availability to obtain a DOAC. And I'm pretty sure Jimmy has interacted with those patients in the ED where he's like, I don't know if this patient can be adherent. I don't know if we're going to see this guy again. And I don't know he can even afford the drug. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Further on, um, Jimmy, like, uh, what else do you think is important and relevant about this topic? I think for a lot of the PharmDs that going to be down at ED, you're going to have a discussion with your providers and say, hey, what's your dispo for this patient? And they're going to go based off what they assess that the patient be high risk or uh, low risk. And you, you have to know what are your options. And then once you have the option to send a patient home, you, you may get a consult. You know, one of my shops, we have a consult that comes out the pharmacy and you're, you're responsible for counseling that patient and assuring that they can get those medications and setting them up for an outpatient uh, follow-up. So this is something that a lot of you guys are probably already doing and you being involved in this and, you know, this is going to be something that's part of your day-to-day -day activities. Yeah, absolutely. And then further on, like, so, uh, like supporting, like, more of these kind of initiatives that Jimmy was talking about. Falconeri and colleagues, they found that none of the 106 patients that developed the VT recurrence on outpatient therapy, and they did not even experience any clinically significant bleeding. Pharmacist management of DVT program in the ED had a 91% initial clinic follow-up. So another role for like pharmacy right there, just kind of leading the charge on that. And then starter packs. So there is one for Eloquist and Zarelto that when given a discharge, they can increase proper dose transition and overall adherence. There is a study out there with uh, River Rocks Band Starter Packs that has shown this kind of transition. So again, like we like to practice not only evidence-based admin, but also evidence-based pharmacy practice. Right, Jimmy? Absolutely. So uh, the first study that I uh, quickly go through is a pharmacist-led DVT treatment program. So in summary, a patient comes in the ED, pharmacist education takes place, they schedule an outpatient follow-up. In this study, they had a warfarin clinic. 30 patients stayed within the program. There was a one recurrent uh, DVT and one recurrent bleeding event. But overall, those 91% attendance uh, limitations, again, 30 patients, small sample size. And at this point, there was no DOACs used in the study. Just some things I want to add was that follow-up is important. Make sure you have the appropriate exclusion inclusion criteria. And this is like the first study that proved that early ED discharge for non-complicated DVTs is actually possible. Jamie, did you have anything on that study you wanted to share? I think it's important to kind of, uh, from a historic standpoint, to figure out where we came from, especially these patients that are on warfarin, um, and realize that we've been sending patients home on this as well. So. So a second study is uh, Castelli's article, and here they dispensed the River Rocks Band starter packs. So these are patients that were discharged, and it had a comparator group of patients that received the starter pack versus ones that didn't, they kind of had to go retrieve their own medications. And then they had a follow-up at 21 days, and they found no difference in transition and good adherence and comprehension. So and it kind of shows that regardless of the patients getting them themselves versus patients receiving the starter pack, they were able Starter pack showing like it has helped patients transition into appropriate therapy. Uh, other limitation in the study that there was only 29 people in the study, and they didn't use the official commercially available pack. Um, this was like a customized pack where like the outpatient pharmacy prepared for these patients. So this is kind of interesting that if you're a hospital or ED where you have the retail pharmacy on campus, like that's just an extra service your out, outpatient or retail pharmacy can have. Uh, some comments I want to add was that it did include not only DVT, but also patients with PEs, which I thought was interesting. They're sending patients home with, with non-complicated PEs. 22 days was a too long of a follow-up. 
there may be some CMS requirements where they should follow up in three days, week, etc. So you have to look at that. They did use a PESI score that they use to indicate low mortality risk for patients in PEs, and then significance of education and increased adherence compared to other trials that, that discussed early direct AD discharge. Uh, yeah, and I, and I like this study because it, it did a few things for me compared to one of the previous ones. This is something that, you know, a lot of ED FormDs are actually looking at right now. I think 22 days is a, a long follow-up, but based off what, what I've been seeing over the past, that's probably a realistic follow-up. And you know more from the administrative side what should be and from a compliance standpoint, but when I'm scheduling these appointments, that's about the time that I'm actually getting these patients in because we're just so so stacked up. And I like the fact that they use some objective, you know, score to identify those low risk patients to kind of help us out and make us all feel very comfortable about sending these patients home. So I, I really like this study here. I agree. Like the PESI score is an interesting help with PEs for sure. The last article we're gonna review is a choose article and where they also use a starter pack. This was a retrospective study where patients were discharged from the ED. And compared to the patients that were sent starter packs versus ones that weren't, those are 7% versus 18% of those patients were readmitted. Other limitations, uh, four patients were unable to obtain the drug. 29% of patients were actually lost that follow-up. Some comments I had on this study was that uh, better sample size, 41 versus 34 patients, uh, recognized the question of ability to retrieve the med. So this article kind of discusses of like, it's great that you can have all these early directed initiatives, but the patient can't go home with a drug. It kind of defeats the purpose. And mm -hmm. then the one thing I didn't like was that there was no cost analysis completed just because like from a measure perspective kind of shows like the value about that, like because we know how expensive these drugs can be. And like previously mentioned in our background discussion was that, you know, not only adherence, but can patients actually afford the medications? Uh, any nuggets on this trial, Jimmy? I think it's very similar. I, I would have loved to have some of those uh, verified or validated tests to kind of identify patients and talk about that. And I think just identifying where these medications are coming from and that hours of operation for these would be a key thing to kind of know as well. And again, like uh, this study did look at uh, these patients were diagnosed with DVTs and PEs. So, what we're going to talk about today, so this is a, this was my PGY2 admin project uh, we got going. So I just kind of wanted to share things that we were doing in my hospital, and I'm sure Jimmy could chime in there. So what we kind of did was that we just want to keep it simple, very non-complicated distal DVTs, um, just because we want to make sure we got ED provider buy-in. Um, so patient had to be an adult patient. They had to be extremely low risk. What do you mean by low risk? Like couldn't be obese, couldn't have a previous VTE, can't, couldn't have active cancer, couldn't be on any oral contraceptives or hormone replacement therapy. And then had to make sure you had to rule out whether or not if they uh, if it was, they came in for chest pain, you had to rule out for P or MI. And if they did, then we immediately took those patients out of the algorithm. But the next thing we did for those patients is that, all right, they're 18 years old. So far, their risk factors look good. We're going to do the Wells criteria. Um, if they had a Wells criteria score of greater than one, then we went ahead and went further down our treatment algorithm, whether or not these patients were a candidate for a DOAC starter pack. Uh, Jimmy, um, can you dive in a little further about Wells criteria? 
I think from that standpoint, I, everyone here, I think at this point in their career, we can go through and talk about whether well, a patient has like active cancer, you know, calf swelling, pit edema, different things like that. But you, you have to make go online, go online, or go on your get one of these apps called MD Calc, or um, that's that's the one that I use. But another another calculator, ClinCalc, you can get that as well. And when you're assessing these patients on the bedside, you can just go ahead and run your well score from that standpoint. We notice it's a validated test that we can use, and it literally takes me, you know, less than 10 seconds to calculate a score and, and provide it to my provider versus going through each and every step and try to identify yourself. So definitely I would encourage a lot of our active providers and a lot of the farm who kind of went through the academic component of it. Just download one of these apps, calculate it, and then identify how you can use the well score versus sitting there going back and forth about each component that's in at this point in your career. Yeah. And what the Wells criteria score does, it kind of like rules in DVT. So like if they had a score of one or greater, then in fact, it is likely that they do have some kind of DVT or VT event. Some examples of the thing the Wells criteria looks at, it looks at active cancer, calf swelling, pitting edema. And again, a score of one and two is considered moderate risk and the patient should proceed to high sensitivity D-dimer testing. So again, like it's not to replace ultrasounds, right? It's just to kind of like, if you can quickly rule this patient out, then that means that they definitely don't have a DVT. So, all right, great. Patient has a well score, one or greater. They definitely don't have an MI or PE. So now we're thinking like a DVT is indicated. Is this patient eligible for outpatient management? So, for example, like do they have anything else going on? Like, for instance, like are they having a stroke or is it hyperglycemia? <laughs> like if it's only just left for like if the primary indication is a non-complicated DVT, then sure, then they may be eligible for outpatient management. Um, we do have some criteria for that in our algorithm where the patient had to be ambulatory and in a stable condition, like they had to be able to like move around, normal vital signs, no significant symptoms of DVT, uh, low bleeding risk, no severe renal insufficiency, able to comply with prescribed anticoagulation and agree to follow up. And again, no other clinical indications for admission. And then the other thing they had to look at was whether if it was acute or chronic DVT. So this DVT, the same location, same blood clot from the previous ED visit, if it was chronic, then the patient wouldn't meet our criteria. If this was an acute event, then we'll go ahead and provide them with a DOAC starter pack to send home. In our institution, we uh, use Xarelto. And in the Xarelto starter pack, we'll talk more about the Xarelto starter pack, but then at that point, going down the algorithm, that's uh, how a patient met criteria. So in summary, 18 years and older, how to be low risk, how to roll out MI or PE, how to have a well score of one or greater, how to be confirmed by ultrasound, um, and how to be eligible for outpatient management, and to make sure that this was, in fact, an acute event. Then, therefore, we sent them home with a 30-day starter pack. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty key that you outline a lot of these things because a lot of times from from our perspective downstairs is you can actually provide, hey, is this person sick? You know, I think once you for some reason the ED gets so simple that you ask them, hey, is this patient sick? Like, you know, how do you feel about them? Does this patient worry you? And then also a key thing that you mentioned was whether this was an acute or chronic DVT because I've been consulted multiple times for a chronic DVT that's been somewhere and they want to send them home on a starter pack because, oh, well, they just wasn't taking it before or, you know, something else happened. And, you know, we have a, a very, you know, in, indigenous population at my second shop and, oh, someone stole their medications because they didn't have, you know, access to proper home and then they want to restart them on these packs. 
And, and I think from a, if I if I came to you as an admin and said, oh, well, I gave this patient with a chronic DVT a starter pack three or four times, I don't think you'd be too happy with me, and you know my numbers would look pretty bad. Yeah, absolutely. So this initiative was great when the algorithm came to our desk, but then we're like, how are we actually going to dispense these? to the patient. <laughs> so a little more background. So we had to choose between Eliquis and Xarelto. And the only reason why we felt we had to select one was just because the dosing was different and we just wanted to keep things simple. If they, if the AD provider had other preference, they were more than welcome to hand a patient a prescription instead of giving a starter pack. We're totally fine with that. We just went with Xarelto mainly because of like a safety concern because in the starter pack, there was 51 pills and Eliquis, there's 84. And we really feel comfortable like just sending a patient home with 84 pills. So that was mainly <laughs> why we just went with just, hey, we're just going to stick with Xarelto. So how are we going to dispense this? So yeah, patient confirmed DVT and met inclusion criteria. For us, we made sure that the provider had to enter an order set and the pharmacist had to verify the protocol, kind of double checking that, yeah, in fact, patient met criteria. We dispensed these out of our central pharmacy, and there was a labeling process that took place. In other words, like if we're going to send patients home with drug for outpatient use, yeah, so if, so if you're going to send something with a patient home that has more than a three-day supply, it has to be a multi-dose medicinal drug, which means that it has to be a commercially available product, like inhalers, products, insulin vials. So in this situation, uh, the Doc Starter Pack. So if you pre-packed anything that was more than three days, that would technically in the state of Florida be illegal because it would meet outside of our limited community permit. So I'll say so we'll dispense out of our central pharmacy, make sure our labeling requirement met um, the standards of the limited community permit that we had in the state of Florida. Then the nurse would administer the first dose from the starting pack, which kind of meant like, yep, patient received dose in the hospital so they could be sent home with it. And then they kind of document that, yes, the patient received the pack and they were sent home just to kind of help close the loop. The last part, which I felt like is the most important part, was that the care navigation team that we have here and the transition of care pharmacy team actually followed up with the patient, made sure that they followed up with the provider. And if they need to uh, meet the pharmacist in the clinic, they're more than welcome to, like if they had to switch to a different DOAG for insurance purposes, so they can continue therapy if therapy was warranted for longer than a month, further education, because again, these patients come in the ED and they come thoroughly confused. Uh, lots going on, the information is just thrown at them, so it's an opportunity for the pharmacist to kind of slow things down for them and help them out. So, um, Jimmy, any questions about the workflow here? See, there's a few things I want to kind of highlight here. The first part is going to be making sure that system that identifies the ED pharmacist that these patients are, you know, there. Do you have a consult? Do you have um, is someone calling you? Is there a certain way to identify these patients that's different from all the other patients that you have in your ER? So, again, if you have a consult or some type of um, patient care tool that helps you identify these patients, I think that's going to be key. Being where I've used Epic and Cerner, the two more popular uh, EMRs, there's a particular way to identify these patients. So that's going to be one thing. The next thing I have to say is obtaining this drug from Central Pharmacy. Is this going to be something that's sat? Is this something that we can have sent down pretty quickly? Do you have a runner or can this be sent to the tube station? So identifying what's the quickest way to get these patients this drug and get them counseled is going to be another thing. And making sure that the RN is actually documenting this on the MAR because they're 
I, I can see where there would be some issues where we're giving them this medication and we're giving them one dose, but is there an inpatient order for that one time before they're sent home? And lastly, making sure we have somewhere to document these things that we did and making sure there's adequate handoff to the transition of care team to make sure that they have all the resources they need to continue this care. So those are my, my, my big things from an ED performance's perspective is identifying those patients, identifying methods to get the drug very quickly, and making sure everything's documented on a MAR and making sure at some some way whether you're using something like Theradog, Vigilance, or whatever your tool is to communicate amongst pharmacists that that's done, whatever you did in ED has been documented. Again, like, so what is a limited community permit? And in every state, it could be different. But for those of my Florida folks, patients at the hospital who are under continuation of a course of therapy, it cannot exceed a three-day supply. Uh, patient or caregiver, educational administration of the multi-dose medicinal drug, if necessary, on individual basis. Uh, multi-dose medicinal drug, as used in this rule, means, but is not limited to commercially available multi-dose packages, such as inhalers, ocular products, insulin vials, pens, otic products, bulk anabolic suspensions, topical agents, medjol dose packs, um, et cetera, and provided that ink containers may, may exceed a three-day supply. So if it's a, as long as it's commercially available and it's more than three days, it's fine, just as long as they're able to break into it. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of people ask me, like, all right, it's great you're doing this initiative. What have you guys learned? I'm like, all right. Well, at eight weeks, we avoided 26 admissions and a cost avoidance of over $63,000. And this is only at eight weeks. This only took place at three of our EDs, and it was only for non-complicated DVTs. So you can kind of see that from the C-suite or from a scamp standpoint, like where they see the value of this. And none of these patients have been readmitted for a DVT. Any, any of the, the numbers there, Jamie, have for you jump out at you? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this from an ED FTE perspective you know, with everyone trying to get um, get the 24-7 coverage. I would love to see what happened if I can apply to this and collect a ton of patients. And if I can if I can save you close to half a million dollars and I can justify just getting one more pharmacist or one or two more with that, you know, at a, in, in the system, that would be, that'd be great for me. And I think it is for more from my standpoint from, from you, if I provided you these numbers, and said, hey, you know, if this project that I set up, if we can do this throughout a system, we can save yourself close to two and a half million dollars. I, I think you'll be pretty happy with me and be able to pro provide me with the extra FTEs to make my ED 24-7. And like I said, like one of the most important pieces of this project was a transition to care team. So I have those numbers for you. But the first thing I want to share was like, what is the median? Like, what was the turnaround time for the patient in the ED? Uh, the median time for that was around four hours and 41 minutes. So from everything after being diagnosed, all the tests, like they're able to go home with the drug within four hours, right? So now you have beds, you have availability ED. Pretty sure the ED managers would love that. Absolutely. The transition of care team was able to capture 15 of the 26 patients and aided six patients with payment assistance for continuation of DOAC beyond one month. So like they're able to help out six of the 29 patients. Um, they did note that there were five drug-to-drug -drug interactions for those patients, and eight patients have received extensive medication education assistance. What they meant by extensive medication was that it kind of took a little more than 30 minutes with the patient. The drug-to-drug -drug interactions that they found were mainly are patients who were taking NSAIDs, and the patients who received extensive medication education also received education on duration of therapy, how to take the medication, and knowing when to contact the provider. So those are the key things that we found on the transition to care side. So 
set a bunch today, like essentially trying to help you guys out, like how to start this kind of initiative in your ED, just summarizing everything. So in my study or what we learned here, my health system was that early direct DVT with river box and startup packs have, have proven to reduce admissions at eight weeks. Uh, this research demonstrates how hospitals can be compliant with regulatory standards, pharmacy services, and serve the community by providing no additional out-of-pocket costs for the packs. And that was the other thing, too. I forgot to mention about this initiative that we gave the drug away for free. That we felt that it would, well, it was great, you know, like for our patients that we were giving the drug away for free. But we felt that by giving you the drug, it's actually cheaper than admitting you. So, therefore, like, it was cost-neutral, if anything. So, it was pretty nice that we were able to give the drug away for free to these patients. And then last one, highlight, considering like a projection of 900 admissions for our health system with uncomplicated DVTs annually, we'll have a projected cost savings of over $2.5 million. So that's right there, like the money slide, right? Absolutely. So, so far, like uh, one of the other questions to get like, all right, so what are the barriers or limitations for these kind of initiatives? Um, one, is it legal? in your state <laughs> um, mm-hmm. is there a limited community permit um, i'm only familiar with, with florida so i apologize for those states that may have questions i know like i saw on the ashp blogs like people in north carolina were trying to get this going levels of automation so well the common question i got was like hey can we put this in the pixels machine or on so if it's dispensed out of there you have to be able to track the lot number if your adc can track in fact, which lot number the patient received electronically, that would be beneficial just because of, in case of a recall, you would need to be able to reach out to that patient. On our end, we don't have, we didn't have that functionality, so therefore we had to manually write in the lot number and everything that the patients received. So that is like a limitation for the central pharmacy just because of, it was a process that we had to own and not nursing just because we had to document the manufacturer, lot information, and the expiration date just so that we'd have to track these patients in case of recalls. And then that accuracy of documentation for Wells criteria. Um, not Wells criteria specifically, but those the characteristics of the Wells criteria, like items mm-hmm. are using for the scoring. Um, a lot of times, Jimmy, you know, like ED provider notes are pretty short and sweet, maybe <laughs> missing some information. Um, so that's the other thing. So if you're looking at those patients like Hasblood score, and those kind of things, like it may not have all the required information that you need to know. So those are like some items like when you're working with your providers, like, hey, have you, does this patient, like if they did, didn't mention anything about active cancer like hey do we know in fact this patient has a history of cancer like that's something like you would want to know or be able to look up so those are like some of the limitations i don't know uh, if there are any limitations that you've seen jimmy about these kind of initiatives i think just making sure your ed providers are actually educated on what this is going to mean i think a lot of times they've been thrown at they've been thrown a ton of different information and depending on if you're at an academic site, you have to include residents in this education as well. So I think that the sites that this was done at maybe didn't have as many. I know if you have it's one site in particular has the ED residents there, but across the system, you know, what was the the kind of the breakdown of those patients that were sent from an academic center versus the more community sites and they, that drive your numbers. Also, again, the automation was a huge thing for you, as, as you mentioned. I mean, both one of my shops has OmniCell, another one of my shop has Pixis, and figuring out which one can be used to have that lot number identified and can make this a, a little easier. So I think those things would be key and, you know, the accuracy of documenting the Wells criteria is going to, I I can see that being something that is a, a, a battle that you're going to lose, especially within the ED. And these patients are, for a good reason, those are, are not very sick. And the last thing I want to mention was the fact that uh, patients that had these small or low-risk PEs, 
that could be another group of people that we can identify that maybe cannot, can benefit from this and provide an even higher uh, number of patients that, that can be discharged from the ED and increase the revenue that can be generated from this. So I think those are the key things, just figuring out how can we do it, the education, and does the type of facility that you're at drives whether, whether you can or cannot do this successfully, and the, you know the accuracy of documentation, that may be a losing battle. All right, well, Jimmy, I'm very glad we got to do this together. I don't know why we waited it's, so it's long. It's a pleasure. <laughs> We're sitting so back long. just like yeah, waiting man. for the perfect timing of it. Yeah. So, again, thank you guys for, for, for listening. Oscar, thank you for having me as, as like a guest on the show, you know, from your perspective looking at things. And it's just been pretty cool to kind of see this. And this is something I'm going to bring back to my C-suite. Like, hey, you know, I have this idea. I don't know where I got it from. They, they saved the hospital, you know, $2 million. Are you interested in listening? <laughs> so, again, guys, uh, I'm Dr. Oscar Sotalo. I'm one of the pharmacy operations and compliance coordinators at Advent Health Orlando. Um, and I'm here, one of my best friends, previous co-resident. JP, AKA, PharmD in the ED. But no, I'm Jimmy Pruitt, uh, pharmacy uh, clinical specialist in the emergency department. Yeah, uh, where, where can they follow you on Twitter, Jimmy? Again, I, I, if you do, if you don't know, you should know, uh, pharmacy at PharmD underscore in the ED. <laughs> yep, and you guys can follow me on Twitter at farmsoheart underscore OS. And then you also hit me up on LinkedIn. And again, see you guys till next time. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Oscar.